Welcome to Forever Leads. Hello and welcome to this bumper edition of Forever Leads. I'm Rich Williams, a Leeds graduate, and as always, I'm joined by current student Georgia Lay. Georgia, happy new year to you. Can you tell us what's coming up on the podcast? Hi, Rich. Well, before the new season of Forever Leads begins next month, we'd thought we'd give our listeners a little taste of some exclusive content from this year's Digital Alumni magazine. We'll be hearing from the BBC's Russia editor, Steve Rosenberg, on the moment he heard Russia was invading Ukraine. Also on the podcast, we've got an interview with war surgeon Moez Zaton, who used his skills learned on the battlefield to treat the victims of the Manchester Arena bombing in 2017. And we've got the best bits from last year's podcasts. You'll hear from Hollywood A-lister Chris Pine, Neil Cross, the creative powerhouse behind Idris Elba's TV detective Luther, and superstar podcaster Pandora Sykes. But first, here's Steve Rosenberg on how he reported the year that changed Russia forever. I think I was woken up by a call from London to say that it, uh, it had just dropped on the, on the news wires that Putin had uh, appeared on Russian state television with an address to the nation announcing that he'd given the order for the start of what he continues to call the special military operation. And then, you know, the news operation rolls into action. You don't have time, really, to think at the time uh, about the enormity of what is happening. You have to get into the office, get on air, write the dispatch, uh, do the TV lives, breakfast news, and then the Today programme. And obviously, it was a very busy day. But by the end of the day, you know, in, in the in the few brief minutes you have to kind of pause and take in what has happened, it became clear to me that actually the enormity of that event, that life wouldn't be the same. Life couldn't be the same after the 24th of February, that what President Putin had decided to do would change things forever and that Russia would be different. And it really felt in the days that followed that, that Russia had become a different place. I didn't recognize suddenly the Moscow I'd known, you know, the letter Z, the, the symbol of the Russian uh, offensive, began appearing on billboards, on some cars. You know, as Western sanctions were introduced, international brands began to disappear from the Russian market. You could see this change. And it was a huge shock to the Russian public too. Now, for, for months, many Russians here uh, I think, didn't want to accept or recognize what was happening. You know, this was something happening on a te their television screens a long way away. But now that um, hundreds of thousands of Russian citizens have been mobilized by President Putin, uh, people's sons, husbands, and brothers have been sent off to the front line. Suddenly, that's brought the war much closer to home, to, to people here. And so that has meant that Russian society is more anxious, there's more alarm in Russian society now um, as we move into winter. And but going back to what I was saying, this feels like a different place. When I was a kid, 
uh, I always knew I wanted to work for the BBC. It sounds strange, doesn't it? But I watched a lot of telly when I was young, just sat there watching, <laughs> watching the BBC. And I, for some reason, it really made an impression on me. So I knew I kind of wanted to, to work for the BBC. And I used to write loads of letters as a kid to different parts of the organisation, to radio and television and domestic and, and, and world service. And I used to go up and visit different parts of the BBC. And I really got the BBC bug. Anyway, in sort of the mid-80s, when Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union, this, this, this sort of secretive empire, started opening up, there was a lot about the USSR on the television. And uh, I got interested in, in, in Russia and, and, and the Soviet Union. And uh, when I went to university, uh, I thought, well, I'll start studying Russian. I, stu I studied uh, from scratch there. So it was a five-year course. Absolutely fascinating. Um, when I graduated in 91, I went to Moscow to teach English. That was my first job. Uh, four months later, the USSR fell apart. So it was an amazing time to be there. But I knew I still wanted to, to work in broadcasting. And I managed to get a job in Moscow amid all the chaos of the collapse of communism with an American television company, CBS News, just answering the telephone. That was 91. Uh, and then I became a, uh, an assistant producer there. For, for a year or so, I, I, I set up a teletext company, Russia's first teletext. <laughs> That's a whole other story. Because I, I, I worked at CFAX. Uh, I had had summer jobs at uh, the, the BBC's teletext service, CFAX. And uh, yeah, I got a grant from the European Union, would you believe, and some university uh, friends came over and, and we did this teletext service. I got a, a deal with Russian state television. We did it in Russian and we did it in English. Um, and all the, I remember all the kind of the, the Russian state television officials who were, who were kind of peering through the door thought, well, these foreigners must be making millions, you know. Of course, this was at a time when, when <laughs> uh, Russian oligarchs were making millions. Of course, mm. we made nothing. We made no, uh, you know, and, uh, and the whole project sort of came to an end. And I went back to CBS. And then in 97, got a job as a producer at the BBC in Moscow. Uh, and then three years later, became a reporter and then a correspondent. Yeah, and then uh, spent basically about 30 years living and working in Russia. I had four years um, as, as Berlin correspondent, but most of the last three decades spent um, here in Moscow, yeah. Gorbachev was on our TV screens so much. You know, he was one of the most powerful people in the world. He was clearly trying to change the world, and uh, he was an historic figure at that time. I never dreamt that uh, I'd actually get to meet the man. And I first met him, I think it was 1996. So I was working for CBS, and Gorbachev had been out of power for, for five years, but he was trying to make a comeback. He was running against Boris Yeltsin in the Russian presidential election, and he had no chance of winning. I mean, polls showed that he... You know, he lacked support uh, amongst the Russian public. But we went on a trip uh, to, together to southern Russia on the campaign trail. That was my first experience of meeting Mikhail Gorbachev. And he came across then, I remember, as a very nice person, right? a, a human being with a sense of humor. And I'll never forget, you're sitting in the, in the hotel. I think it may have been in Rostov, the Intourist Hotel. And uh, Gorbachev and his team invited our crew to sit with him. 
uh, one evening and the band struck up and started playing Yesterday. And I thought that was such an appropriate song for someone who's basically, whose political career uh, was over. And, and the election showed that because he, only, he got less than 1% of the vote in that presidential election. Um, but I, I never imagined that I actually become a correspondent would go on to interview Gorbachev. And I interviewed him, um, I think, five times. Uh, and after one interview, Gorbachev had a piano in the corner of his office. And our camera operator, Rachel, pointed to the piano and said, Mr. Gorbachev, do you play? And he said, no, I don't. Uh, do any of you? And, uh, and I said, I played. So he said, sit down and play something. So <laughs> I sat down and sort of started playing um, Moscow Nights, I think it was, famous kind of Russian song. And um, Gorbachev started singing. And um, for the next sort of 10 minutes or so, he was sort of singing various songs. And I, I, I learned more about the man in those sort of musical minutes than I did in, in the whole political interview I just recorded. He really came across as very warm-hearted, very um, sincere, uh, and clearly someone who loved his wife. His wife, Raisa, had died a few years before, and he was singing some of her favorite songs too. So it was, it was a special moment. Basically, I started, uh, I did an extra year uh, at the beginning of my course, starting from scratch uh, in Leeds, and a year out as well. So it became a five-year course, my Russian studies course. And I have such happy memories of Leeds. I mean, first of all, the Russian department. Uh, I, I absolutely loved the department. It was small, uh, and it really inspired me uh, to, to fall in love with, with the Russian language. And, and the country. I remember every lunchtime, they would wheel out into the, into the department this satellite television. They'd just got a satellite. And they showed, in, in, uh, during the lunchtimes, Soviet TV. And I sat there. I couldn't understand much of it at the time. But I sat there just watching these programs about like combine harvesters uh, going through the fields and perestroika and things like that. I, th I was absolutely hooked. It was fascinating. And it's because of that, really, that I, I, I decided that when I finished my course, I wanted to go and work in, in Moscow. And luckily, um, a, an English teacher had, from Moscow had come over to Leeds um, and was working in the department. And she actually uh, gave me a contract, a teaching contract. So when she went back to, the, to Moscow, to the Moscow Machine Tool Construction Institute, as it was known then, uh, she gave me a contract to teach English uh, in August 1991. That was my first job. So, uh, yeah, I've got a lot to be grateful to, to Leeds for. I had a great time. I, I, I ran the Russian Society um, in the department. We put on concerts, um, all kinds of events. I loved the city. Um, and, yeah, I, I have very happy memories of, uh, of studying and living in Leeds. My fourth year was amazing because uh, I did a year in Moscow in 89, 90, as, as the, the Soviet empire was creaking and starting to fall apart. It was an amazing year, an absolutely amazing year, a year of hope and a year of, of, of problems uh, for people. So that was an amazing time to be there. And earlier in 89, because Leeds had a, 
an exchange program with Kiev University. I also did three months uh, in Kiev in 1989, which was amazing too, a beautiful city. I remember Kiev, the, the chestnut trees in Kiev being absolutely beautiful in bloom. And uh, I made friends there in Kiev 89, uh, and I still keep in touch with them to this very day. Um, so that was a very special time. Uh, the, the great thing about the, the Russian department in, in, in Leeds was it put the emphasis on language, on speaking Russian. And they also sent us to a, a language course in Minsk in 1988. Uh, which was brilliant. I still keep in touch with the teacher I had in, in Minsk in 1988. So it was a great course with great teachers. You know, I still keep in touch with one, with one of them, Natasha Bogoslavska. It was, it was a, a brilliant course. And I'm really, really glad that I chose Leeds uh, to, to study Russian art. Next on the podcast, Moez Zaton graduated from the Leeds School of Medicine in 2009. He then spent time in war zones in Libya and Iraq, but he never thought the trail of destruction he saw on the front line would follow him back to his hometown in Manchester. He spoke to us about the night of the arena bombing and how Leeds prepared him for his life as an NHS surgeon and a war doctor. I was working in a hospital in Manchester at the time, and so I woke up and so, you know, a lot of messages and I'd seen the news and, you know, I kind of rushed to work um, because I knew that we'd received some casualties. And then basically it was all, all hands on deck. And, um, you know, I was working in the trauma and orthopedic department. And what had transpired is overnight, you know, there were, of course, multiple casualties and the, the type of injuries we'd seen as well. I think that was also a first because I hadn't seen anything like that in the UK before. Um, and the way you treat a lot of these types of injuries, so blasts and shrapnel and, uh, you know, th that kind of profile of injuries, I I'd never seen in the UK, but I'd seen it a lot in Libya and I'd seen it in Iraq. And this had happened two or three weeks after I'd just got back from Mosul. And so I'd just come back recently with that experience and I felt that I was able to contribute to a lot of the discussions because the way you manage these patients differs slightly to somebody who may have a broken leg from, from a car accident, for example, um, a shrapnel injury is treated very differently, is considered to be a dirty wound. And so there, there are lots of considerations for infection and, uh, and all those sorts of things. And so there, there's a slightly different consideration with, that, with those type of patients. That, you know, it was such a tragic day to see something like that happen in, in Manchester, in my hometown. But I saw the very sort of worst of humanity from that aspect, but on the other side, in the NHS, it was one of the, the best examples or the best days I've seen the NHS function in my career, and I'd probably still say that today. Um, and it was just because of the way that interaction happened, collaboration across multiple hospitals within the region, patients, you know, everything was just sort of dropped to do the best we possibly could. Leads on the 10th floor, I think it is, of the Worsley building, they've got the anatomy labs. And um, that was sort of my first introduction to surgery, the first time I held a scalpel. And then in my second year was when we sort of decide where to go next in terms of specialty training and career sort of pathway. So, and sort of halfway through that second year, the issues uh, around the Arab Spring came came to light. So 
there were sort of popular uprisings in, first of all, Tunisia, then Egypt, Syria, Yemen, and Libya. Um, and my parents are originally from, from Libya, and a lot of my extended family are from there. And so indirectly, I became involved in helping with sort of charitable initiatives, sending medical aid. Um, there were a lot of expat Libyan doctors around the UK through what was happening in Libya. A lot of us sort of started arranging meetings. And so I, I spoke to my program and I said, look, this is what I've been involved in in the last few months. And I'm really passionate about the cause and I feel like I want to be there and uh, I want to be helping on the ground. And is there a way that um, you could support me with this? And they were really understanding. Um, it only took one email and it just opened me up to seeing the set of problems that a population that's not the UK population, seeing their daily struggles and the problems and the profile of uh, trauma that they're exposed to. And I think every time I go out and do that kind of work, I think it probably makes me a bit more grateful, a bit more grounded as a person. So the David Knott Foundation um, is, you know, as the name suggests, it's, it's run by um, David Knott and, and his experiences, and it's, it's run by him and Ellie, his wife. And um, their mission is to train the greatest number of, of surgeons to be able to provide life and limb-saving surgery in resource-poor environments. And so I've been working with them since 2017, since I went on the course and then came back from Mosul. I've you know, been grateful to be invited back as faculty. And so we uh, run the training courses about twice a year um, in the UK, and we have surgeons from the UK as well as surgeons who come from different countries. I think it was March, uh, we went to the south of Turkey um, to train Syrian surgeons. So we run the Turkish-Syrian border in the south of Turkey. And then I've also been out um, in July to the West Bank in Palestine. Yeah, it's a, it's a great program and uh, it's a phenomenal organization with lots of great people. And it's allowed me to continue doing what I do here, but also to be able to help to upskill um, other surgeons um, in different countries to develop other trainers and maintain my interest in this field as well. Finally on the podcast, we couldn't leave without giving you a taste of some of the best interviews from last year's run of episodes. If you missed them, here are some snippets of our in-depth conversations with the great and good from Leeds. First up, there was Hollywood A-lister, Star Trek actor and Leeds alum, Chris Pine. He spoke about the time he spent in West Yorkshire. Chris Pine, thanks for joining us. How are you and where are you? I'm doing really well, man. I'm in uh, Los Angeles, California, my hometown. Uh, happy and excited to be alive good so the question we have to ask how on earth does a guy like yourself come to be studying in leeds yeah no i was an exchange student in 99 to 2000 i wanted to study abroad and got into the the study abroad program at my at my home university in near san francisco in berkeley I'm a born procrastinator, so I, I turn in all of my, you know, top choices for where I wanted to study quite late. And <laughs> Leeds, unfortunately, wasn't top of my list. I think, you know, I, I didn't know much about Europe at all, but I had I had Dublin in there and London, and I think I had Madrid and a couple of other places, and they were all taken up. So my my sixth or so choice was 
leads and that's the one I got and ended up spending a year there. So, and I'm, I'm very thankful for that, that turn of events. It's a bit of a change, isn't it? From Berkeley to rainy Northern City. Was it a bit of a culture shock for you? Oh yeah, it was huge, man. You know, I, I'm a, like I said, I'm, I'm born and bred LA. So I'm a child of the sunshine and uh, I'd never been to Europe before. I don't think I'd ever been out of the country, maybe except for Canada. So, you know, to be on that long plane flight, it's the per- first plane flight, long one that you do by yourself. And I fly from Los Angeles and I think I landed in Glasgow. My first mistake was telling the cab driver driving me from Glasgow to Edinburgh that I just landed and that I was really enjoying uh, England so far, <laughs> to which stop stopped the cab and, and said, uh, you're in Scotland, son, remember that. I did read uh, that in the Yorkshire Post, of course, that you immersed yourself in British university culture. You went to the Union Bar for drinks after lectures. You got acquainted with smoking rollies and drinking Tedley's Bitter. <laughs> tell me about your life as a student, because this, this was mine as well. You know, Tell me yeah. about your life as a student. They put me up with a bunch of other study abroaders, so I ended up on uh, Brudenell Road, flat. In terms of my, my life up there, you know, I loved, I really loved school. I loved studying and, and uh Leeds is a tremendous university and really quite well known, obviously, as you know, for uh, English literature in their humanities department. So I studied English there. And I remember a course I took on uh, a seminar course on Graham Greene that I, I loved and read all of his work. And then socially, there was a there was a tongue going on. I remember uh, I was a kid of, you know, 90s hip hop and there was a, a, a hip hop bar club that had opened up called Norman's that me and my girlfriend at the time loved. There was a dub reggae spot just outside the city center that was tremendous. One of my favorite spots was the the Leeds Movie House, which was all the way down Brudenell Road, right at the the beginning of the park next to the university, which uh, I go to a bunch. Is that the Hyde Park Cinema? Yeah, yeah, the Hyde Park Cinema, exactly right. A yeah, legendary yeah. place. You couldn't production design a more perfect movie house than the Hyde Picture House. It was just like straight out of something from the 30s or, or something. As you said, you know, like the first time I'd ever encountered a bar in the middle of campus that you could go to <laughs> after a seminar. So I definitely partook in that. Did you find that uh, things that you enjoyed in Leeds have, have, have stuck with you? I mean, are you the only person in the United States who likes a room temperature pint of bitter? <laughs> yeah that you know look that t- took uh, a minute getting used to i happen to really like it because i don't I, I was never a big beer drinker but so to get like a, a nice meal and a glass was definitely special after a long night of heavy northern drinking getting a, a pasty at like three in the morning always felt good what in hindsight what i really appreciate about having been up north is the directness and bluntness that goes both ways i felt with a northern character a certain kind of carpe diem you know let's just have a a fucking party and enjoy ourselves there's an intensity of, of spirit i really really enjoyed then we heard from the creator of bbc drama luther neil cross he gave a fascinating insight into how his childhood influenced his writing the path that took me to Leeds University was was long and winding. I, I had a fairly atypical childhood. I was born in Bristol to a very typical kind of white working class, uh, non-bookish family. There were no books of any kind in my house. The bulk of my upbringing was I was raised by a, my stepfather, who was Mr. Cross, whose name I took. And I was raised in Edinburgh, who was a, a 
a white South African white supremacist, a man of complex character, not all of it good. But one of the great things that Mr. Cross did for me in retrospect and indeed at the time was introduced me to a love of the written word. Is saying love of the written word the most pretentious way you can say that you like books? And Mr. Cross, for all of his complexities and all of his faults, was for a brief but important period an outstandingly good parental figure that he was able. And I I think this is part and parcel of the kind of person that he was. I presume now that he's dead. He was continually seeking to reinvent himself through new relationships with new people, to be loved and to be admired. And if you look at it negatively, he was able to shine the intense light of his intention of his attention and interest and love on you. Now, it might be the case that what he was really doing was seeking a kind of mirror to bounce love back onto himself. But nevertheless, it made him, in many ways, an outstanding stepfather. He gave, For that brief period, he gave me kind of all of his attention. My early education in the cinema was always going to the cinema with Derek Cross. But he was a white South African, a very specifically anti-black racist. He was also a kind of complex anti-Semite in that he used words to describe Jewish people that I would hesitate even to quote. But at the same time, when he told me about the Holocaust, he cried. So though he was in every way it's possible to be a racist, even that racism was not uncomplicated by the kind of fractured nature of his persona and his humanity. He was a very complicated man. He was complicated in such a way that I think uh, ultimately he gave me a career. Everybody that I write or everybody I enjoy writing has kind of got, has aspects of the anti-hero to them. I mean, when I was a child, I adored him. I really, truly adored him. And then, you know, and then he ditched us. And then I spent years hating him. And then, as one does, I spent, you know, I spent years and years assimilating him into my understanding of the world. He was a very useful lesson in how the world works. And finally, here's a taste from our latest interview with podcaster and writer Pandora Sykes, who naturally waxed lyrical about her time at Leeds. I decided to go to Leeds. Well, I saw that it was quite good for English. I think it was I think it was in the top 10 and I had a lot of friends going to Leeds that year. I thought the city was amazing, first impressions but also last impressions. The building that I spent probably the most time in that is just so beautiful is the library. Also, I went to an all-girls school, so the thing that really fascinated me was that I could sit alongside boys studying and I'd never seen boys in an academic capacity and I thought it was like the strangest thing. It was like seeing safari animals in the supermarket. But yeah, that building was really beautiful. And also it has the most amazing shops. The shopping in Leeds was really good. When I was there, Topshop was a massive. It was this cultural force that I don't think the high street's ever seen before or after. And the Kate Moss for Topshop collection launched while I was there as did the iPhone. And I queued up at 4am for both of them. And I was quite proud that I was the second person in Leeds to own an iPhone because I was right at the front of the queue. So I was I was a bit geeky, I suppose, in some ways and still am. I always knew I'd study English. There was 
there was actually never anything else that ever came into it since as long as I can remember. I just always loved writing and reading. I can remember I wrote my dissertation on Atonement by Ian McEwan. I think I was a pretty diligent student. It was before I got to Leeds that I knew I wanted to do journalism. I was always writing to magazine editors asking if I could do work experience. And I did a bit of work experience uh, when I was at school at a couple of different magazines. But most places don't let you do it until you're at university or even when you've graduated. So I just did a lot of sort of reaching out to people. And sometimes really kind editors would reply. I remember Sue Pert, who was the then editor of You magazine, which is the Daily Mail's weekend magazine. She would always write back the kindest emails saying, you know, I've really noted how much you've got in touch with me. And I then later did go on to run a startup, a fashion startup for the Daily Mail um, the year after I graduated uh, because Sue put my name forward to one of the associate editors. So even if at the time it felt like I wasn't really getting anywhere, I think it was really useful writing these these love letters from afar because it helped when I when I came out the other side. Thanks for joining us for this special edition of Forever Leads. We'll be back in February for season four of the podcast. You can expect to hear interviews with famous alumni, stories from campus, and the latest innovations from our world-leading researchers at Leeds. Until then, bye for now. See you soon.